Let's take our Bibles. Turn to Psalm 127, or alternatively, you can see it on the screens. Psalm 127, verses 1 through 3. Let's read it in unison. Are you ready? Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Father, thank you for the word that you've spoken into planet earth by your Holy Spirit. And we pray, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring this to life in us today for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ and for his sake we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I like this word, except. This verse makes a universal statement which always holds true in all circumstances, in all times, past, present, and future, for all people, with only one exception, one way of escape from this universal, all-encompassing statement. It says that all human activity and endeavor done apart from the Spirit of God, apart from abiding in Christ, apart from reliance upon the Spirit of God, is useless, meaningless, and empty. That's pretty strong, isn't it? It sounds pretty bleak and hopeless, does it not? That's because... It is. There is no true hope except in the Lord. But when your one exception is never going to fail and never not ever going to not be there and never in the eternity, past, present, future or any parallel universe imaginable not there, then you're okay. (laughs) As long as you have him and are walking with him. So, yeah, it's pretty bleak. But then again... Solomon didn't pull any punches when he analyzed it all, did he? He painted a pretty bleak picture of human activity, endeavor, learning, and achievement. Poor Solomon. He didn't have an accept in his analysis of it. His dad, David, did. He had an accept. Solomon didn't. Thank God for those of us who read Solomon's statements through the eyes of the Spirit of God, we know that there is an except, except the Lord. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 2.11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity 
and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Then again in Ecclesiastes 4.4, 4, Again, I consider all travail, all work, all the activity of men and every right work, that, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Also rendered something like this. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Makes you kind of wonder about... All, have you ever like wondered a bit like all the inventions and all the amazing things that men ever did and wondered how many of them actually came out of carnal ambition? I mean, we may all kind of benefit from some of those things today, but the people that were able to achieve those things were motivated by self-gain and self-aggrandizement. Have you ever thought about that? Makes you wonder all what man has done and accomplished over the years that is meaningless and has not or will not make one iota of difference to eternity. Eternity will not be different because of it. Makes you wonder what man is doing now that falls into the same category or even the church. The works of men don't always come with a big pink post-it note stuck to them, do they? That tells you if what is being done is being done of the Lord or not. Sometimes after a while it becomes more apparent, but many times, at least initially, the first few years or decades, you might not be able to tell. And there is this universal principle that applies to all men without respect of persons. God is not partial. God's not like, oh, you're a Christian now. Everything that you do and attempt and work at is of the Lord now. God doesn't do that, does he? He will not own our everything. Nope. As Christians, we now have to have the capacity through the Spirit to let him build the house. But whether we will learn to use that capacity and choose to use it is another thing. Now, at this point, I'd like to throw in a little warning. This kind of a message contains a killer temptation. And I mean killer because if you fall to it, it brings death. And the temptation is to look around you and to try and figure out other people and whether what they are doing is led of the Lord or built upon the Lord. What does Jesus say to that? What is that to thee? Follow thou me. So don't fall into that. It's a little caveat I'm just going to throw in with this sermon here. It will take all of our energy to walk in this and to apply it to ourselves. So we need not mind other people on this unless the Holy Spirit specifically gives us a word of correction or warning for someone else which I personally have found to be pretty rare. So, if Solomon painted a pretty bleak picture of all human work, endeavor, and achievement, and intellect, and wisdom apart from the Spirit of God, Paul goes a step further, and his picture is not so much as bleak, but more like frightening. Uh, 
that we could run the risk of wasting our energy on something that was not eternal. And not only waste our energy, but actually miss the true works that the Lord has for us and have nothing to show on judgment day. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is what I'm referring to here. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, if anyone adds to Jesus Christ, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, the day of the Lord. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. You know, things can really look one way to men. Things can really get a lot of applause from man and be nothing worth applauding. Think, things can get a lot of ridicule from man and a lot of belittling from man when it's tremendous, tremendous thing in the eyes of the Lord. If any man, if any man's work abide, remains, which that which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned by that fire of judgment, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire, like being saved by fire. Um, <clears throat> that's the kind of scary statement there, he shall suffer loss. I don't want to just get into heaven by the skin of my teeth. How about you? Um, with nothing to show for my time on earth because I did the wrong works. Except the Lord build the house. Ephesians 2.10, a familiar verse to us, confirms this and builds upon this further. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God has predestined us to certain works that he has chosen. Not what we have chosen, because we think it suits us better, it looks better, it works out better, it's more expedient. No, according to what he has chosen. So if we let the devil, the flesh, or our own fear, or fears, plural, draw us away from waiting upon the Lord, trusting him, we may miss our part of what the Lord has put us here for on planet Earth. Solomon painted a bleak picture Paul paints a scary picture. Next point. The effect of living in a city of human built houses. That's where we live, isn't it? Mm. One day I walked out of my house when I lived on South Cortland Avenue to do my uh, morning prayer walk and devotions and I had a strange thought. I looked at every other house in the block and I thought about the lives inside of those houses. And I thought that every single life that I walked past in the street and every single house that I walked past most likely constituted the sum total of not God's will. Where they were living was probably not God's will. Not, I'm not trying to be judgmental or everything, but we know by common sense that the, most people don't walk with God. And of those who find Christ... Some don't always come to a place of maturity and seeking and finding and knowing his perfect will and following it. So I could conclude walking down the street that most houses and the lives represented inside them were not God's will. 
I therefore concluded that everything I walk past most days, all every day, is what I see as a picture of not God's will. Because we know that this human king realm is not his kingdom. Right. So how does it affect us to live in a city of humanly built houses? That's what I've called it. It's except the Lord build a house. Well, we're living in a city built houses, not built by the Lord. When I say houses, when it says except the Lord build the house, Remember, house back then can mean like the house of Stuart in the English monarchy, you know. It can mean you and all your descendants. Unless the Lord builds your life and the life of your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, it's all in vain. Unless you let them. Or houses could mean like, um, like a nation or a business or an endeavor or, or even a physical building, whatever it may be. Except the Lord build the house. The builders build in vain. It's all a waste of time. It's useless and it's empty. It'll not make one iota of difference in light of eternity. So what is the effect then of living as we do in a city of humanly built houses? These humanly built houses shout and scream at us every day of our lives. Look at me. I'm something. I'm worthwhile. Build you a house. Just like me, I make my builders feel good about themselves. They can walk away and justify their lives and say, ooh, I built something. Now my builders can send out newsletters to everyone about what they've built. You'd better build something too. Go ahead and do it. Build something. You know you've got the strength and power to do it all by yourself. That's the effect of living in a city of humanly built houses. There is only one remedy to living in such a city as we do, and that is to be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly use. Have you ever heard that term before in a derogatory sense? You're just so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly use. Well, you know what? I'd wear that as a badge of honor. Because what I see on the earth is no use anyways. That is my goal in mind, to be so heavenly minded that I am of no earthly use. So thank you for the compliment. In fact, while I'm at it, when you throw your next statement at me, don't just stand there, do something. That's my next badge of honor. To be able to stand there instead of doing something. Don't just do something, stand there. Who can do that? Only the man or woman who is truly plugged into heaven by the Spirit of God. That they can stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And in a few minutes I'm going to deal with verse 3. Because it's not clear in this text. But I'm going to deal with verse 3 and it says exactly the same thing. The only remedy to living in a city of humanly built houses is to be so heavenly minded that we are of no use according to the judgmentalism of this world. This all sounds kind of hopeless, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds kind of infuriating, doesn't it? I mean, we love the Lord. We want to do something for him, don't we? Do we? That's the question I've asked myself too. 
Come on now, Nikki. Who are you really serving? Is it the Lord or yourself? Anytime we purpose to do anything for the Lord, anytime we purpose to do the God of the human, the universe a favor, we'd better watch out. Because in that instant, our motives are being tested. Our motives are being tested and we are being sanctified, to use the, the big word. We're truly being set apart for, for the Lord because we thought we were going to do him a favor. And then the Spirit of God starts to deal with us and to find out a little bit more about that. Yeah, this kind of message almost wants you, makes you want to throw your hands in there and say, why bother? You know, we need to serve the Lord the way he wants us to serve him, not the way that we want to serve him. Otherwise, it's not true service, actually, is it? Except the Lord build the house. The builders build in vain. And there is good news. We can do this. We can serve the Lord the way he wants us to serve him. Only as we commit to being his friend. There's the first work right there. You want to do the God a favor? And this is going to sound crazy. Just be his friend. That's all he wants, first and foremost. That's his first and primary call on our lives, to work hard at being a good friend to Jesus. Amen. Not leaving him behind. Not leaving him out. Not saying, Jesus, I'll take you to church. Come with me to church. But now that church is over, let's go to the restaurant and you can just, you stay back there in the church house. I'm going to the restaurant without you, Jesus. No, Let's work hard at being a good friend to him and taking him everywhere. Talking to him about everything. Listening to him. Isn't that what a good friend does? They listen. Eh? A good friend, they believe, to believe in Jesus. To believe him when he tells you things. When he tells you, don't do this, it's not good. Okay, I'll believe you. Don't say, no, 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 Jesus, you're wrong. Work hard at being a good friend to him. Believe in him, trusting him. God has set this Christian thing up. There's, there's no bypasses. It's, it's foolproof, you know. If we try to bypass the first step of being a good friend to Jesus, to run off to do something amazing for the Lord, we'll find out that he doesn't need us to do that. But when we worship him, wait upon him, talk to him, he will have a few assignments for us. Be it big in the judgments of men and most of the church or small. It doesn't matter. What it matters is that it's his. That's all that matters. It's his. And it is not in vain because the Lord built the house. You see that word coming up three times in these verses? Except the Lord build the house, they that labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to set up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. It's not in vain, whether it's big or small, if it's the Lord's. Once he is the one building the house and not us or man, watch out. Because amazing things are going to happen. 
and ways that you could never dream. And ways which may well be the opposite of your dreams. Because God works in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. I want to close with this story, okay? I told you on Thursday I've been reading some missionary stories recently uh, to, my, to my children. I like to recount a brief chapter in the, in the life of William Carey. I'll try and summarize it the best I can. <clears throat> when the Lord builds the house and we let the Lord build the house, it's not in vain. You Google the place Serampore, India, which is the city that William Carey labored in over 200 years ago. Okay, this is Wikipedia now, okay? Totally secular, liberal, it's not any Christian perspective. There he is, right there. There's his face, 200 years later, because the Lord built the house. But the thing is, if we'll let the Lord build the house, it's not as if once we let the Lord build the house, it's plain sailing after that, because the Lord has got a whole different way of building. That's why it's eternal. So, just to summarize, Kerry, I mentioned to you, he, went as a, he, was, he was a pioneer of modern missions because nobody else did missions at the time. <clears throat> and uh, he wrote a groundbreaking work stating the need for Christian people <coughs> to reach out to other people with the gospel, not only in their locality, but in the other side of the world, if necessary, as we've been hearing about uh, this morning. And he suffered. He suffered much for it. I mean, it wasn't a big deal to him because he loved Jesus and he just kept going and he had a vision which burned so strong that the suffering just seemed to kind of fall off of him like he was Teflon. Um, but uh, just, he had to suffer from his family, he had to suffer from his wife when he announced to the world his mad hatch plan to go to India as a missionary when nobody did missions. Uh, he, he had to suffer just to get out of England. He had to travel six months by boat, including almost being killed and his whole family in a storm in the Indian Ocean, just to get there and to have nothing to live in poverty, to live in a mud hut, and to have like about enough rice to eat one little bowl of rice a day, because they had no money, they had no financial support, very little, the financial support they had, they had to ration so much just to have enough food to survive, they didn't have any income that they established yet. He saw children die, um, his wife lost her mind. Finally, when things seemed to be getting better for William Carey and they were able to establish a mission in Serampore, India, a mission house there, they were able to see their first converts finally. They were able to establish a print shop with a printing press because Carey was gifted in languages. He translated the Bible into two Indian dialects and print, it was the first person to print the Bible in two Indian dialects. They printed it, they started to distribute it Things just finally seemed to be getting off the ground. Um, even uh, Providence played into Carey's hands as well because the, um, you know, I don't know the full history of the, the British um, colonization of India and control of India, um, but the, the British guy in control of, of India as, as British territory or however all that worked, 
um, decided that uh, the young graduates coming from Britain needed to be a little bit more cultured and a little bit more indoctrinated in the Indian ways, and he couldn't find anyone to teach them that apart from William Carey, leading expert on culture and language of the Indians. Are you reading it over there, Lisa? Um, this is the fast version. <coughs> um, so uh, Carey was made the professor of a college and um, taught Indian language and Indian culture to, uh, to young British graduates and people that would eventually uh, lead British government and enterprise in India. So while he was in another city doing this job, he got news one day that his printing press and his print shop had burned. It got on fire, it burned. They lost their printing press, which, I mean, a printing press wasn't just someone who just, I mean, these are poverty-stricken missionaries. You know, it took a miracle to get a printing press in the first place, not just like going over to Staples and buying like a laser printer and sticking it on your desktop and plugging it in. We're talking about a printing press, burned. We're talking about all the typesets for all the Bibles that took them years to set these typesets and prepare this press, burned. We're talking about the manuscripts for his latest book, which was like a two-language dictionary, two or three-language dictionary of Indian terms, which was going to be a foundation for future translation, multiple years of work, manuscripts for it, burned. Okay? Uh, we're talking about 10,000 pounds. I'm not talking about weight. I'm talking about British currency of paper, which I could only imagine would be tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of paper today. Burned. It was all burned. In fact, when they thought they had the fire out and there was still some smoldering going on, but they thought they've had the fire under control and they might be able to salvage, salvage some of it, somebody ran in, opened all the doors and windows on purpose so that the fire would rekindle and everything was burned. How do you think Kerry felt about that? I mean, you, 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 it would cause you to question this sovereign, omnipotent God of ours that's supposed to be protecting his own work, right? I mean, don't you think that the Indian pagans got a little laugh out of that? Ah, that happened because they angered the God of Siva or whatever. I don't know all these Hindu gods and stuff. Do you know what? You can imagine that probably was not very good uh, um, publicity for these crazy English missionaries, was it? That God would let their printing press and everything in it burn. Except the Lord build the house. And the Lord was building the house. But you better watch out because the Lord doesn't build houses the way men build houses. This is how the Lord builds houses. When news of this uh, disaster and unfortunate loss reached England, See, Kerry had had the hardest time getting churches on board because missions was a new thing. They're like, what, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Why do you just need to stay home and forget about this crazy stuff? He had the hardest time getting churches on board to support his mission or fund his mission in any way. And in fact, his work was not that well known of in, amongst the churches in Britain at the time until his print shop burned. After that happened... The work of Kerry in the mission of Serampore, India, it went viral. News of this went viral amongst churches in Scotland and England and, and across Britain. They sprang into action immediately. 
uh, people were touched by the story. Immediately, they started to raise funds. Uh, the, all the churches in one city would raise funds and, and, send, it, and send, send it to India and send it to these missions, his mission society. All the churches in London, they had so much money coming in. They had to write to the churches back home and saying, stop sending money. We've already got more than enough money to rebuild the whole print shop and buy a new press and buy all more paper that we need. Not only that, but people were like, who is this guy, William Carey? We want to see what this guy looks like. You know, they didn't have Facebook back then. So they managed to, con they managed to convince Carey to, let to sit still so they could make a portrait of it. Sit you know, everything's got to go back by ship and everything. You know, there wasn't any uh, air mail or internet back then. It, every it was all time delayed by six months. They sent back this um, engraving of Carey, and before they knew it, Carey's face was in houses and churches all over Britain. So then um, the, 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 the Christians in Britain, they start to ask, well, this is kind of weird. Um, why is it that our government, which is in control of India, does not allow missionaries in India? This is not right. The British East Indian Company does not allow. Kerry had to sneak in without a license. He staked everything to get there. It took him six months. It took him everything and he didn't even know that when he got there, he would get caught and sent back to Britain by his own people that were in control of the nation that didn't allow missionaries. So once Carey's name in the news of his mission went viral, and people said, wait a minute, um, why don't we allow missionaries over there? William Wilberforce, who was a Christian man and politician, who if you've heard of his name, had already conquered and outlawed slavery in Britain long before it was outlawed in America because of Wil William Wilberforce. He just had this victory outlawing slavery. Well, he said, this is my next mission, to make sure that missionaries are allowed in India. All because William Carey's print shop burned, except the Lord build the house. And when he does, you better watch out, because he builds things different from men. So, Wil so Wilberforce took this whole case to Parliament, and I'm just going to want to read verbatim from this closing account, just bringing this thing to a conclusion. Um, churches all over Great Britain joined the fight, all because his print shop burned. And in 1813, William, William Wilberforce presented to Parliament a petition with over half a million signatures. Half a million people in Britain were cheering on William Carey and urging that more missionaries would be allowed into India. The petition led to a long debate in Parliament. Men who had been past governors generals of India were asked to testify. Lord Wellesley himself spoke up on behalf of missionaries, using all the good done by the Serampore triad that was William Carey and two of his buddies what they became known as, as evidence of the value of the work of missionaries. Other men tried to stir up suspicion and fear. What if missionaries ended up causing riots, they asked? Or what if they insulted the local religions and disturbed the peace? And worse, what if trade ooh, was interrupted as a result of their, of their actions? In the course of the debate, William Wilberforce gave a speech in which he described William Carey's contribution to literature, translation work, cultural understanding, horticulture, and, uh, and agriculture. It seemed, however, to be the fact that William Carey gave all of his 1,500 pounds salary that he earned as a college lecturer to the mission that really impressed the politicians 
In the end, William Wilberforce won the day, and on June 28, 1813, the charter of the East India Company was amended to say that it was the duty, okay, here's a nation and their government that were basically just kind of exploiting a colonized territory for all it was worth, right, and reaping everything they could and sending it home for profit and nothing else. Their charter was amended to say that it was the duty of Britain to, prom quote, promote the happiness of the Indian people and that a part of doing this was to offer them, quote, useful religious and moral teachings. All because William Wilberforce's print shop was burned. Does the Lord know how to build a house? The way was finally opened for missionaries to travel freely to and around India. William Carey received the news in the very best possible way. His brother Tom's youngest son was the first person issued a license to be a missionary in India and he arrived and presented himself to his uncle William for service. Psalm 127 verse 3, verse, verse 2, the, the last clause in verse 2 kind of captures this all and concludes this whole message. I'll read it to you in an alternative translation. That last clause is a little bit confusing. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Now, some of your Bibles may have a footnote to an alternate rendering or translation of that Hebrew phrase. This, uh, this other translation, this is a contemporary translation. Quote, uh, Psalm 127.2 It is useless to get up early and to stay up late in order to earn a living. God takes care of his own even while they sleep. Well, William Carey slept because the Lord was building this house. God put the Indian mission viral and filled India with missionaries. What does God want to do for you while you're asleep? If you'll wait upon him, know his leading, and just do what he asks you to do. Nothing more.